So I think it's it's a possibility. And why not, if there's a possibility there, why not take full advantage of the possibility of liberation capitalism? A way of redesigning, or re-implementing, or rethinking technology so that it designs systems according to some of the insights of positive psychology and positive neurobiology, uh, rather than the older pessimistic assumptions of an earlier age designing a new types of systems, a eudaimonic technology that will open rather than close our humanity. All right. Welcome back to the Musing Mind podcast. I'm Oshan Jaro, and I am really excited to share this episode today. I'm speaking with Dr. Benjamin Honeycutt, who is a historian and professor of leisure studies at the University of Iowa. Uh, He's the author of a number of books, two of which have been incredibly formative for me in, in the past few months. His work centers around what he calls the great mystery of leisure, Uh, which is roughly, and he'll explain this in the conversation, that for over a hundred years, the American public understood that the point of the economy and the stuff of progress would be shorter working hours for all and more and more leisure time for citizens to more deeply explore and realize and develop uh, their own humanity, their own freedom. And then after the Second World War and the Great Depression, this broad cultural understanding just kind of disappeared. So that by 1980, no one even spoke about shorter working weeks anymore. Uh, The virtues of leisure were discarded and now seen as dangerous to society. So the mystery is what happened and how and why did it happen so quickly? And what have we lost in the process? So we explore the history kind of from 1830 until today of the American cultural attitudes towards leisure and the the political economy that grew out of those attitudes. Um, We explore the present moment in American political economy, where the absence of a higher purpose than economic progress is leading, or at least implicated, um, to a series of crises. And then we explore a, a pretty wide array of strategies to reintroduce the ideals of leisure and higher progress, as he calls it, borrowing from Walt Whitman, Uh, into the American political economy in the transformed context of the 21st century, which brings in a whole new set of conditions. As always, you can find links and notes and more information on the podcast website. That's musingmind.org slash podcast. Um, If you enjoy the podcast, consider sharing it on social media or rating and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts, which really helps bring it to new audiences Or you can become a Patreon supporter and help me grow the podcast by offering a small monthly donation. And that is all I've got. All right, so in we go. Enjoy my conversation with Benjamin Honeycutt. Dr. Honeycutt, welcome to the Musing Mind podcast. I am really grateful that you've you've taken the time to join me here today. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate the invitation. So there is a lot of ground that I'm excited to to cover with you today and specifically about the historical relationship between America's political economy and free time or leisure time. But maybe before explicitly getting into your work and the history, there's an interesting tension that seems to be resurfacing today that I think is emblematic of a lot of the, the topics I'd like to get into. You know, this idea that increasing leisure time for all 
is at odds or in conflict with more progress and more innovation, right? One of the concerns that people will raise about uh, national programs that provide economic benefits that aren't tied to labor um, and, and, you know, might actually allow people to spend less of their lives working is that we would sink back into this kind of unproductive lethargy. So again, the, the supposed conflict is that more leisure time is taken to mean less innovation, less ambition, less progress. And your work kind of directly grinds against this idea by, by situating it historically and showing the political and economic climates in which our attitudes towards leisure have evolved. So I wanted to begin by asking, what do you think we are overlooking or getting wrong when we assume that more leisure time means less innovation, less progress? One of the, I go back to um, organized labor and, and what uh, union leaders said for so many years that the more dear, <laughs> if wages get higher, innovation will be sparked. I and mean, the, the idea that people will be more inventive trying to you know, uh, ease the burden of labor. If labor is, more, is, is paid, what, what labor is worth, then there would be an incentive to uh, find new labor-saving devices. And that would be a good thing because mm-hmm. it, would be, uh, it would mean more wealth, uh, more higher wages, ever yet higher wages, and short hours. Short hours and higher wages for organized labor for over 100 years, well into the 20th century, were the keys, the stimulant to uh, uh, economic progress. Uh, it's a way of... of, of encouraging <laughs> the entrepreneur to find ways, more efficient ways to produce things. Mm-hmm. And that's good. Uh, as, as we become more and more efficient, uh, eliminate more and more of jobs that are repetitive, then it means that if organized labor and, and workers are able to share in that increase, uh, and there's the rub, uh, then, then uh, it will all will be well. Uh, the, the, those two things don't go together. Hi, higher wages and short hours uh, are, are means to economic growth and a stimulant to economic uh, innovation. Yeah. Yeah, you actually, uh, you opened the final chapter of your book, Work Without End, with a dialogue that I thought summed up this, this view really nicely. Uh, there, was, there was a character who was expressing doubts about why, after so many years of supposed progress, we still toil as tirelessly as ever? You know, why can't we all enjoy the fruits of civilizational progress, he was asking. And another character responds, and I'll quote him here. So what do you mean? A little thinking, but not much? A little work, but nothing serious? No, nature drives. Now she wants to turn our very success against us and tempt us to be indolent, fantastic, idlers and pleasure lovers, betraying ourselves in another fashion. Let the new generation play, waste the life that is in them, a planet load of holiday makers spinning to destruction, just a crowning festival before the dark. And this was from H.G. Wells's Things to Come in 1936. But there, you know, for some reason, we've come to believe that free time is both socially and economically unproductive, whereas historically, some of humanity's greatest contributions, I'm thinking of a number of composers here, even Charles Darwin, who wrote in his free time have come from what we would consider leisure time, right? Intrinsically motivated, self-governed pursuit of some topic that people find interesting enough and are curious enough about to devote themselves, not because they're going to get a paycheck out of it, but because they have some kind of intrinsic drive to, to study it. And you know, this might be a good lead into, we, we talked about a little before the recording, but just to lay out for anyone listening, you know, a, as a historian, you have devoted a, a lot of your professional life uh, to explicit books and a number of other works 
to studying what you have called the great mystery of leisure, right. which surrounds something of, of an unforeseen mutation kind of in the American dream itself. So to begin, could you just give us an idea of what the mystery is and, and how you came to be so interested in it? Well, I, um, I came to be interested in as a graduate student in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, writing um, a paper, a seminar paper, and then I wrote my dissertation uh, about th this very topic. Uh, I, I noticed a life-changing event for me as an article in Monthly Labor Review in 1972, I believe it was. <laughs> very few people hmm. have their lives changed by the Monthly <laughs> Labor Review. But John Owens, an economist at Wayne State, he's got, I've got to know uh, John Owens over the years, he wrote an article uh, um, in which he said, in effect, that we've had no increase and, and leisure time since since the uh, end of the Second World War, um, and that sort of shocked me. That uh, that surprised me, and so I, I started, you know, way back then, uh, a long time ago, forty years ago, trying to to figure out what happened to this uh, age-old dream. Not so much ease, but opportunity to be freed from economic uh, mandate, the, uh, trying mm -hmm. to solve the economic problem all our lives. Uh, having solved the economic problem, this is John Maynard Keynes's phrase, of solving the economic uh, problem. We could solve mm -hmm. it in terms of the basics of, of life and, and distribution, a fair distribution. We could solve that. Uh, and then after solving that, the great problem, the, the, the great uh, task before us would be to solve the problem of living uh, of, of what the, what is there to do in this freedom. Uh, and I, a lot of really smart folks <laughs> through the 20th and 19th century struggled with what is there worth doing beyond necessity, not beyond working, having to, uh, what is this content of, of, of free time? Uh, mm. My third book, Free Time, The Forgotten American Dream, I, I try to outline, I give a catalog of the various people, such as Walt Whitman, John Maynard Keynes, <laughs> uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, Julian Huxley, uh, the names is all of my favorite people in the world, who had yeah. who had this expectation. You go back to Jonathan Edwards, back in the colonial days, <laughs> who talked about the kingdom of God. And he thought, you know, that we would have the technology, the enlightenment, science, we would solve the problem of making a living, then we could get on with what is really important, our lives. Mm -hmm. uh, so you had this wonderful dream that, that animated the 19th century. The work was important primarily because of the means to an end. Throughout the 19th century, working hours gradually got shorter and shorter, cut virtually in half during the century of short hours. Then it stopped. And that article that I talked about John Owens wrote that we'd had no increase in leisure after having cut working hours virtually in half, no one expecting the process to end, and but end it did. Uh, I was I started uh, following John Owen and his question, why did it end? He, of course, economist asked the question in the monthly labor review as an economist, why did this process end? And he gave some extraordinarily good. Uh, economic answers. What I've what I've tried to do is follow along him, uh, his his uh, insights, and try to to ask the question as a historian, 
and try to uh, um, come up with as many answers as I can <laughs> through, through, through my scholarship. That's the focus of my scholarship is to try, number one, to ask, uh, to ask that question, um, why did working hours stop getting short when no one really expected it to happen? Um, mm-hmm. Quite the contrary. Yeah, and one of the, the cruxes, I think, of your argument is that there used to be a very clear connection and even hierarchy between economic progress and this term that I believe you've borrowed from Walt Whitman, higher progress. And for, for a long time, uh, maybe more specifically, maybe from 1830 all the way up to 1930, Americans were under no illusions that economic progress was an end in itself. As you've mentioned, it was always understood as a means. And beyond that, it, there was a very concrete understanding about how economic progress would serve higher progress, which was by the progressive shortening of labor hours for everyone. And importantly, right, this was not just for people who, who made it, not just for people who were meritocratically successful, but even the lowest status laborers, you know, working right. in factories in the fields, everyone would have shorter working weeks and an abundance of leisure time. One of the most exciting things that I came across when I was writing Free Time, The Forgotten American Dream, were uh, some of the newspapers from um, the early, the, some of the unions, the first unions in the United States, oh, wow. uh, among, in, in the Lowell uh, Mills, of the women workers there. They, they had a publication, and I was able to, to, to get to the archives and, and look at, have a look at the, the newspapers. I found in those newspapers writings for, of ordinary, you know, the working women uh, mm-hmm. from Lowell, Massachusetts. Uh, and and that the vision is there, mm, <laughs> the vision yeah. of, of solving the economic problem, uh, and then getting on. They they saw the ten hour day uh, mm-hmm. as a one step along the way, a progressive shortening of the hours of labor, which was centrally important to organize labor in the United States until um, the mid uh, mid twentieth century and beyond. A progressive shortening of the hours of labor. The AFL talked about this in 1920. Uh, we start 10 hours, uh, eight hours a day, six days a week, five days a week, and so forth. 30 hour week, they were struggling for the 30, 30 hour week in the 1930s, uh, and so on, uh, until the balance shifted in, in our lives from making a living to, to how to live. Uh, that vision was, was clear from the very beginning of organized labor. And you can see it in this, in these newspapers in 18, uh, 1830. Yeah. How, how do you think about defining or gesturing kind of what higher progress is? And I understand to a certain degree, this is an ineffable thing. It is, it is embodied. It's very experiential. It's very internal. Um, and, and it's very kind of uh, endemic to the kind of interiority of, of being human. But that being said, I think it'd be helpful to try and gesture towards you know, to, to create the dichotomy between economic progress and higher progress. You know, Marx, of, of course, talked about this in, in certain terms. He, he felt that the true realm of freedom only began once the realm of necessity ended, that they were kind of mutually exclusive. But how, how do you gesture towards what higher progress is? Well, I understand it more or less as, a, as an opening, an arena, um, hmm. a, a new ty- type of freedom that, that only the aristocrat had enjoyed before. The coming of the, the of the machine of the machine age of, of technology, technology is going to free every man, every woman, 
to live their lives beyond necessity. Uh, that was the, that's higher progress. Walt Whitman's view, the all yeah. the vision of what what's going to constitute that higher progress was was quite complex. You had to, again, as I say, that my the third book, Free Time, The Forgotten American Dream, was a catalog, a variety of, of, of suggestions, of possibilities that Walt Whitman mm. lists a number of possibilities that he thought would engage our, you know, we would be able to do that would, would constitute this higher progress. Frank Lloyd Wright, <laughs> one of my favorites, Mm. Uh, I, I love to work with with wood and a uh, woodworker and, and and build things a carpenter, and he thought that it's higher progress. We would each all of us have a a chance to uh, rega- regain the craftsmanship that had been lost with the, with the assembly line. <laughs> we would mm. all be able to to return to being able to make beautiful things for our home and for our neighbors and for ourselves outside of the marketplace. As, as a hobby, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. and he saw he saw that the machine giving us that number one this leisure. He thought that his buildings. He said specifically that his buildings, with the free space that his buildings provide with all of the new materials, was a metaphor for this new time, this leisure that was coming into the American economy, and he wanted to. Uh, to talk about that, to prepare the way, and uh, his, his buildings again uh, represent embody that that leisure that that uh, he thought would revolutionize our uh, or uh, yeah revolutionize our our lives. So again, the the, co- the the vision was was very complex. It was not not just one you know um, co- consistent vision, other than. We would have more opportunity to, to well, I guess I could make generality, some general observations, a, a more of a, a chance for self-expression. Mm-hmm. Uh, the artist in us would have a chance. Uh, we could return to, to, to making things as Karl Marx would, would have it, uh, and that would embody... Uh, we would express ourselves. We'd embody our personality, our very, uh, our essence, in the in the products of our hands, and uh, that would be uh, for some writers uh, um, the self-expression. Whitman also, self-expression with our words, um, social engagement, um, being able to uh, live our lives successfully in the presence of other people, to share our existence with other people. That would be our main concern. How to to uh, to build human relationships, how uh, to cultivate uh, uh, things that we do together. God, I've got so many examples. Of, of, <laughs> who was it? Um, one of the writers of the 19th century. His name is is a, Edward Ellery Channing. And I'm not sure that's mm. a familiar name. We talked about dancing. <laughs> <laughs> This is also one of my favorites. He said, we are the only people in the world, even then, that, that don't dance enough. He thought nice, that we yeah. have the opportunity to dance uh, and that we would fill our lives with with, uh, with, with that activity uh, that he thought would be especially uh, um, attractive to us. Singing also, Jonathan Edwards, that's, I'm, I'm naming things that, that I love <laughs> to do. So, <laughs> Sing with people around us. Poetry, the word, the erotic word for Walt Whitman. We would make love to each other with our words. <laughs> mm, yeah, was, oh, I think you're right to. I think you're right to characterize it, and I, I like this framing that higher possibility or higher uh, progress is an opening that 
yeah. an opening of the possibilities, whereas existing kind of entirely bounded within economic incentives has a kind of constraining, narrowing effect on on what is viable for us to do at an everyday level and kind of at a broader existential level, whereas the freedom from labor, uh, it, it by removing the the absolute kind of subservience to economic necessity, meaning to to what the market dict- dictates as valuable, it it frees people to explore broader notions of value, maybe beyond what the markets will immediately um, remunerate, but nevertheless are, are perhaps essential to the to the human condition. Exactly, it's an old idea. I mean, the notion of human freedom and what is available in that freedom goes way back. Uh, to the Mm -hmm. classical age, to the Greeks, to Plato. I teach Plato in my classes. Um, The liberal arts, the original institution of higher education, the academy, Plato's academy, uh, taught Mm -hmm. the liberal arts uh, in order to teach people to be free, to teach people about this leisure. And they use the word. Our word for, and this is always a surprise to my students, and it confounds them for a while, uh, I point out to them that our word for school and scholarship comes directly, uh, the etymology of the word is uh, directly goes back to the Greek word, skole, for, guess what, leisure. Wow, how far we've come, how far we've spun. That's my, my point to my students. Liberal arts is not because it's a bunch of pinko-type <laughs> professors who are liberal. No, it's the free arts, the arts of being free. It's not teaching people to work. And then we changed. We, 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 the education has done a 380 degree turnaround uh, so that it's going in the opposite direction, teaching people to work. Originally, it's to teach people to be free. And the, uh, the catalog of what is there to do with this, this freedom, uh, the, the struggle to answer that question goes back. To, to Plato and Aristotle. So there's a lot of really good literature, you know, the classical literature that I'm struggling with through the Middle Ages. One of my favorite books that sort of got me into this uh, field was Joseph Pieper's book, P-I-E-P-E-R, uh, yes. Leisure, the Basis of Culture. And he writes about the Middle Ages and, and the classical tradition, the Greeks, uh, that this was the, the, the leisure is the basis of culture, that our, that our Western civilization was founded not in work, <clears throat> but in, in freedom. And what happens in the 20th century is that labor is, is successful in reducing working hours because of the machine. And so people like uh, Robert Hutchins, a president of the University of Chicago, another of my favorite heroes, um, uh, uh, try to, as well as Joseph Pieper, try, try to um, um, wake up, uh, try to bring back uh, the old classical notion, the Greek idea of leisure. But what they're saying is that whereas this, this idea that leisure is only for the aristocrat, it's not going to do for modern democracies, but the machine slaves, technology has opened leisure for everyone so that everyone has access to the liberal arts. So Robert Hutchins at the University of Chicago tried to turn the whole institution, <laughs> and they kicked him out. Uh, <laughs> in the 1950s, he tried to turn the whole institution into uh, recovering um, the liberal arts, liberal art, teaching people, uh, not only students, but also adult. Adult education is one of his big things. Uh, uh, teaching people uh, the arts of freedom, which were the liberal arts. Uh, and uh, addressing directly 
uh, what was happening, he saw around him Robert Hutchins, uh, working hours getting shorter and shorter. He saw that uh, this 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 old Greek ideal of leisure was nearly relevant to the 20th century and to the masses, to the, to every man, to every woman, mm-hmm. and we, we had to do that. Uh, we had to do do that. Otherwise, we would either ignore the possibility and re-enslave ourselves to work without end, the title of my first book, <laughs> or we would have to relearn these old uh, arts of freedom. Whitman is, of course, my all-time favorite, expressing this adhesiveness that we all feel that the marketplace can't bring us together, cannot establish the types of community that really give expression to our full range of humanity. The marketplace does bring us together in, in, in the sense of exchanging what we need, a tit for tat, a fair deal, you know, if you're lucky. <laughs> yeah. uh, but that was even, that was one of Marx's, I, I thought like great kind of insights and, and critiques of, of capitalism was that what the commodity form does is it literally it colonizes and, and mutates the social relations that that are established between people within that society to become relations of of commodity to commodity, and what that does is it kind of transmutes the actual character of how we relate to one another. Yeah, I, commodification. Uh, uh, Habermas's term. I I certainly think that has happened. I don't think we're stuck there, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a possibility of of. Uh, I'm looking at my out my window. Mm-hmm. I've got a bird feeder, and I think I see a scarlet tanager. Good Lord. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, that's worth picking out. Uh, just a brief – my favorite bird in the world, scarlet tanager. They're rarely, really? wow. they're rarely seen, but I swear I saw a, a glimpse of – well, I'm sorry. Well, uh, that's a perfect like crowning metaphor for the, uh, the, uh, uh, the higher would, progress narrative. Oh, how are we going to get there? That's – by my latest effort, looking around and, and at the political landscape, it doesn't look like there's going to be an open window politically for a long time hmm. because of the strength of, of the right. And, you know, things like Habermas, I certainly support things like a guaranteed annual income and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think there might be uh, a, a possibility beyond commodification Commodification, of course, Habermas's term is that um, those things that were done freely before capitalism comes along are brought into the marketplace, bought and sold, cheapened. The humanity is taken out of them, uh, and um, we're left with false consciousness and with with commodities that don't really satisfy our humanity. That humanity, in the sense that real community will. I think there's a new possibility out there. I'm not sure you want to talk about but what my my latest book, the one that published this year, mm-hmm. uh, The Age of Experiences, I talk about the marketplace and its potential. I'm not sure you've heard about the experience economy or, or the transformation. Yeah, a little bit. Have you heard about it? Okay. Well, I, I think there's an opening here, a possibility here. The experience economy can be used to liberate uh, I call it liberation capitalism. <laughs> the, <laughs> the, 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 the free market, uh, by offering products, experience products, that truly make people happy in the sense of community, in the sense of self-expression, 
products that transform the individual, the transformation economy. The transformation economy are things like weight loss, travel and tourism, things that change the personality. Mm-hmm. But if you go to the marketplace and are transformed by the market, buying transformations, ch- making changes in your life, acquiring skills, for example, this is my um, best example, uh, acquiring skills that you use later on. For example, my wife and I love to dance, as I mentioned before, ballroom dancing. We're in, in our 70s. <laughs> and we <laughs> love this, this activity. We can't do it anymore. Uh, but uh, everything is shut down. But we spent, spent money learning how to dance. We, we go to ballrooms and still pay our money. We're part of yeah. an economy. But in, the, in these dance lessons, we acquire the skills, the means of production. We're investing our time acquiring a portfolio of skills that we then employ, that we use to create the product, the experience product, that we want all along, i.e. being able to dance, being, mm-hmm. learning new dances. Um, the better I get, the better we get at our dancing, the better the experience is. The experience is what the product that I want. So my wife and I begin increasingly, this is Marx's term, to own mm. the means of production. <laughs> I don't need mm to go to the marketplace. <laughs> so it's think. like the market is the kickstart. It give you, you get it and then you get out of the market and you've already acquired the skill. Liberation capitalism. The market mm. provides the skills, the wherewithal. It is a catalyst to transform individuals, to teach skills, to teach enthusiasms that the consumer <laughs> begins to own. Work and leisure become the same thing. I call this um, uh, intrinsically motivated productive consumption. What is required is less and less money and more and more time. Hmm. The demand for time then to consume what I want to consume, this product, this experience product where work and leisure are the same, requires, again, more and more time. Value flows from the marketplace to the new economies more and more in the, in the, in the, in the form of time <clears throat> rather than value fl- flowing as money. Right. That's, that's theory, really interesting. Uh, the theory is that the income effect will become stronger and stronger uh, with, the new e- with the experience and transformation economies. And the desire, the demand for time ought, ought to begin to be greater so that that will stop that will return to an earlier stage of economic development when the demand for leisure that was still strong during the 19th 20th century the demand for leisure in the economy was strong so that with mm. higher wages with better productivity <clears throat> people chose higher wages of course but also shorter hours combining the two mm-hmm. uh, so there was this demand for leisure, it stopped. Uh, the, the the substitution effect uh, began to take over uh, in mm. the twentieth century. What I predict here is, with the experience economy and transformation economy, the income effect should strengthen, and with the strengthening of the income effect, demand for leisure will, will become uh, will come greater, and working hours ought to, in this new economies, begin 
and leisure should begin to increase. That, that's liberation capitalism. Where liberation the, capitalism. Where, where individuals in the marketplace will decide, well, I need my time more than I need money to buy those things that I want. So they will be, ta- be taking their time. They will be leaving the marketplace, <coughs> leaving the profits that they had previously uh, spent their lives creating for the very wealthy <laughs> and, right. and, and reclaiming their own lives. Uh, and there is no wealth but life, reclaiming the profit uh, of their own life, reclaiming the wealth in, in, in terms not of money wealth, but in terms of time wealth. Yeah. And what I'd like to do before commenting on that, I think I'll circle back to this towards the end when we kind of explore, you know, how to get there, because that's that a really interesting uh, way of framing it all. But taking a couple of steps back, um, okay. and you've, you've already spoken a good amount about the history, so I'm not going to, we're not going to retread too much terrain, but just to give listeners a bit of an idea, um, kind of building off the way that, that you, you put the history, and I'd like you to correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we can put the history into three distinct time periods. Okay. You could look at uh, the time from 1830 to 1930 as the time when there was not only a, a labor movement, but as you've mentioned, a much broader cultural movement that assumed economic progress would naturally lead to shorter working weeks. And during this time, leisure was understood kind of in the same sense of, of ancient Greece as the, the destination of American society where we would more deeply realize our own humanity and so on. The next period would be from 1930 until 1980, which is where the virtues of leisure began to come under siege. Uh, this kind of new cultural ideal that was largely actually put in place by FDR's administration and the New Deal, which was moving from leisure to the, to this term that you've used of full-time, full employment, which was at 40 hours a week. And leisure came to be understood rather than as a virtue, as an actual danger to society. Um, and citizens were were seen as not well-equipped biologically or in terms of their skills to, to actually make good use of that time. And then this final period from 1980 until today, where we've seen a really remarkable development, historically speaking, where working hours have actually begun increasing once again, and largely off of the richest segment of society, kind of lawyers and investment bankers who are working longer hours than anyone else, which is really unusual. And leisure has been entirely discarded as this cultural ideal. And we have this modern era of, of workism and burnout and wealth inequality have all spiraled and took off. So you've already, you've, already, you've already given us a good idea of this time from 1830 to 1930. You've given us an idea of the, the diversity of voices from architects to philosophers to economists to working people, um, who, the, the kind of cultural attitudes that, that prevailed. So I'd like to look at this time period from 1930 to 1980 um, when the, the narrative really started to change. And I wanted to ask what you see as some of the most influential moments in both kind of precipitating the change and, and maybe culminating, right, the, the collapse of this broad shared cultural understanding, right? What were the big moments in this kind of tectonic shift? That's a good question. I, I'm not sure I've really addressed that in my writing. I, I'll have to think about, of course, Roosevelt's administration and the people around Roosevelt who sort of uh, laid the groundwork for uh, work as an end in itself, uh, the uh, federal government, the whole purpose of the economy is to create more jobs. That sort of shift occurring during the 1930s in Roosevelt's administration, I think it begins a little bit earlier, 
in the 1920s with mm. the new economic gospel of consumption. But I, I think the people around Roosevelt are, were very instrumental uh, in, in laying the groundwork for this new, this new vision and the federal government's role in maintaining full-time full employment at all costs. After that, I think it's more of a continuum, uh, having lost the vision after the Second World War. One thing that you mentioned that I, I really enjoyed, and this was related to FDR's administration, but when they were putting together the New Deal, one of the things they were, it seemed from, from your work, they were explicitly trying to do was shut out an existing bill that had passed the Senate, the Black Connery Bill, that would have reduced the working week to 30 hours. And FDR's administration, kind of contrary to at least my understanding of their kind of progressive vibe was that they, they wanted to shut that down entirely. Right. So why, why was FDR so adamant about moving against these shorter hours? Well, it, it originally Roosevelt supported shorter hours. It, it is a gradual turnaround. Uh, before 1935, he was on board. Uh, but then uh, people around him, like Rexford Tugwell and others, began to press him and come up with a new idea. How do mm. you deal with unemployment? Um, before work sharing, shorter hours, uh, was a key solution to unemployment. It was only game in town before uh, 1934, 1935. Right. Roosevelt, again, uh, supports work sharing, but then the people around him, Tugwell, Hugh Johnson, and others, and, and the people around Roosevelt come up with full-time full employment. Mm -hmm. uh, the government maintains full-time and full employment, and it, it becomes the, the touchstone for political reform uh, uh, after Roosevelt's administration, Truman, uh, and subsequent presidents all uh, use the same strategies to maintain full-time, full employment. Uh, even Trump, <clears throat> with the stimulus, mm -hmm. spend as much as possible in deficit uh, in order to uh, have everyone a 40-hour week uh, or more job. <clears throat> um, that becomes um, um, uh, the conventional wisdom uh, in American politics, both left and right, follow along with that with that mandate. The important um, markers, perhaps, after the Second World War was when the possibility of work sharing or reduced hours reemerge as a possibility, and they do. There are bills introduced to shorten, to amend Fair Labor Standards Act uh, below th uh, 40 hours. Mm -hmm. And then you have the marshalling of of support, bipartisan support, to maintain full-time and not, not shorten the hours of labor as seen as something as a retrograde uh, right. uh, development. Yeah, and there's there was uh, one of my favorites kind of lines to kind of summarize the shift in the mood was from a report by the U.S. Department of the Interior that was released in 1974. And in that report, they had a line, and I'll quote them here. They said, leisure, thought by many to be the epitome of paradise, may well become the most perplexing problem of the future, which was actually a softer way of putting it than, than a number of other folks who were talking about how leisure or, uh, would lead to sociological decay, would lead to crime, lead to idleness, and lead to lethargy. Um, so it, it, it was really interesting that this was really that time where there was a, a 180 in, in the cultural understanding. Well, I, I wrote the, uh, the, the Kellogg book. I wrote uh, Kellogg's Six-Hour Day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I sort of focused on that, um, that consciousness change, perhaps, hmm. um, that there was this 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 new uh, understanding of work that I think is critical, developed slowly, uh, but develop it did through the 20th century from a work as a means to an end, 
which I think was predominant in the 19th century. Right. The work is an end in itself, <clears throat> the center of modern life, of identity, of human purpose. That occurs in the, in the 20th century, a gradual process. Uh, work becomes, um, in my estimation, a modern religion, uh, a center of our lives, the centering point of our lives, the, certainly a center of our morality. Yeah. There was a Derek Thompson, who's a writer at The Atlantic, he put this really well. He said that what economists of the 20th century could not foresee is that work would become the primary means of identity production. Right. Right. It's a gradual process, but it, it's all around you. It's in the air. Uh, it's, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, um, our, our schools begin to teach people to work and to, mm. to champion work's place in our life, the central locality of work in our life, and, and have, having no qualms about doing so. Uh, yeah, it's remarkable, and this is what I think made it such a dramatic shift. It is remarkable how quickly this major ideological change managed to sink into the background and no longer even be visible as a point of debate. Um, exactly. That's what, what I think made it so total. Um, and maybe right before getting into the, the kind of modern day 1980 the present period, there, there's one idea I wanted to run by you and, and see what you thought. Um, if we call kind of what we've explore, been exploring so far as the, the story of the decline of leisure, I think there's a, another story that kind of runs parallel and overlaps with the time period that I've never seen explicitly linked. Um, you do talk about a little bit about play, but there, I, th I think these two have a lot to, to inform one another with, and I'd like to, to get your comments. So the, the other story um, I'm working off the, the work of a gentleman, a psychologist named Peter Gray, and he writes about something he calls the decline of play. Um, and he, he wrote a paper called The Decline of Play and the Rise of Psychopathologies in Adolescence. And the, the gist of the story is this, that from 1900 until 1955, historians of play refer to that time period as the golden era of unstructured play that to, to be a child in America in that time period, when you got home from school, you went, you ran outside, you went into the woods, you went into the streets, you met your friends, you were not kind of contained within structures that told you how to spend your time. And about 1955, you start seeing a, a steady linear decline in the amount of unstructured time that, that children spend playing. You see a big rise in the amount of time they spend in school. You see a rise in the amount of time they spend doing homework out of school. You see um, a decline in parents' willingness to let their children run freely. They grow worried about the dangers of, of society. A kind of sensationalized news media starts kind of highlighting bad news and, and kind of distorts our sense of, of safety. There's a growing economic pressure to structure your children's time earlier and earlier on so that you know, they can ultimately get a better job. So all these things kind of led to a, a decline of unstructured playtime. And what he shows is then from 1955 onwards, you also see a steady rise in psychopathologies in adolescence. So things like depression, anxiety, addiction, hopelessness, uh, things of that nature. And so his, his whole thing is to try to demonstrate a causal relationship between the two. But one element that I think is really relevant to the whole leisure question is one of, one of the things that he says play does from a developmental perspective in children is that it increases what he calls our intrinsic competencies, which is our, our capacity to self-govern and intrinsically motivate our own behavior. And so one of the consequences you can see of, of less playtime in children is that as they mature, they're going to have a kind of decreased capacity um, to self-govern their own behavior, to self-motivate. And you can kind of see the parallels to leisure time. So 
what I wanted to ask is, is when we see this change in like the 60s, 70s, and, and really it's finished by the 80s, this change where not only is there an ideological move away from leisure, but people are starting to say that human beings developmentally do not have the capacities to make use of leisure. It seems to me that there could have actually been a kind of real observational component where the 1955, those children, they are coming into adulthood in the early 70s. There might actually have been some reality to the fact that that generation had, relative to previous generations, lower capacities to really make use of leisure time. Do you see any any parallel there? Oh, that's good. I, I, I'm convinced. I've never thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me the name of the, the play theorist. Yeah, his name is Peter Gray, um, Peter and he's Gray. still writing today. I'll send you. I'll send you over the paper afterwards. It's a really wonderful paper. It's succinct. Uh, I, I, yeah, I. I, I I've, I've done a lot of work with, with play, uh, mm-hmm. <clears throat> not so much historically, but in my, more in clinical settings. But in the recent book that I've got, uh, got out, um, The Age of Experiences, I talk a lot about play and how mm-hmm. play for adults can be, be a way to relearn right. those, 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 those competencies of freedom that, that Peter Gray apparently, the damn good point, I'm just... I'm, so tickled to death to learn. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't I haven't thought about that uh, that parallel before, but certainly I, now that you you mention it, uh, it's it, it's it's ever it's it's obvious. I'm embarrassed to say I haven't ever thought about it before. <laughs> well, you certainly you certainly wrote about play even in your first two books. I did I did re- you were you were getting into it from another angle, so you, you certainly approached the subject. But but adult play is is. Um, and one of the selling points of in the experience economy mm. would be a play-like experience, an enjoyable experience, something that's mm-hmm. intrinsically uh, motivated, that is spontaneous, uh, spontaneous in the moment. Um, that has a great potential to to teach, to teach about this possibility of freedom. Uh, and uh, from, I think you know and the generation from the, uh, after 1950. Um, can relearn through experiences that are that are playlike uh, uh, some of the competencies of freedom that we have left behind. We certainly don't learn them in our liberal arts, but maybe you know we can dust them off and find a new application for the liberal arts. But mm-hmm. uh, that's an excellent point. I, I, for me, play is the poss- offers a possibility to um, develop skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of automatically, that you you, you you don't have to be you know instructed about it. You don't have to have a policeman to, to tell you about or a parent to tell you how to behave. Mm-hmm. Learn uh, coping mechanisms through playing. Play is a is a, an emotion. I don't know if you know that, but uh, mm. so neurobiologists have recently found that play wow. is a basic emotion, which surprised the hell out of me. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, closely associated with, with seeking, seeking behavior that all animals exhibit, uh, mm. probing out into the, to the you know looking for exploring. The, the play is a, a is an emotion, but it's the emotion of emotions. We can inframe other motion, emotions, anger, for example. We can contain in the playground, contained within play, the emotion of anger, for example. Or lust, we can contain mm. flirting, flirting. We can contain that emotion uh, and learn to deal with it. Mm. Uh, again, back, back to dancing, my favorite 
recreation. Uh, we're learning to dance, and to da- learn to dance, you have to negotiate with your partner. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. and you have to learn a lot of skills, <laughs> how to get along, how to cooperate. Uh, and you really have to, when you make mistakes, you know, you control uh, your anger or whatever, the, the emotions that you have when you're trying to learn something new with uh, your partner. Uh, but it's it's contained within the dance, uh, within mm-hmm. the playing, so that it's uh, it's a play anger. Uh, the example that I use in my class is I'm playing with my dog, and once we establish we're playing, the growl that had meant something different, anger, threat, mm-hmm. before the playing, before the sign, let's play, mood sign, Let's play. After the mood sign, the growl no longer means the same thing that it does before. Yeah. Let's play. The, it's a play growl. <laughs> yeah, that's it changes I, I, the entire perception of it. it yeah. Does. I know it. I know that it's a playground, play, play growl. The dog knows that I know, that he knows. There's this mutual, there's this communication. <laughs> Amazing a, a communication within the play field. That 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 goes on. So we learn in play, not just uh, coping me- mechanism, not just exploration, but we learn socialization is what people used to talk about. Mm. Specifically, we learn how to get along with other people, how to negotiate. We, we learn how to communicate. We learn um, uh, empathy, that there yeah. is another person out there. So there's some damn good stuff out there about about uh, play that that uh, not just for children. But also, it's importance for importance for adults, continuing that spontaneity and that uh, ability to, to to learn and to find new things that I'm finding today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's 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 wonderful. Um, and so, so maybe moving then into more of the recent time period, but this can okay. really tie into what we were just talking about, right? Even even just before 1980 in the 70s, you have you've documented how a number of progressive social scientists were beginning to think about how to graft and transfer the pursuit of things like autonomy and self-development and freedom onto the structure of modern work, right? And, and one of the examples that you zoom in on is the psychologist B.F. Skinner. Um, Skinner being someone who had once believed that technology and leisure would liberate and improve humankind. But by 1971, um, you quote him as saying, uh, so this is you and then I'll transition into Skinner. You write that leisure is a condition for which the human species has been badly prepared Mass leisure and its misuse had become serious problems because, now you're quoting Skinner, there has been no chance for effective selection of either the relevant genetic endowment or relevant culture. And now this is you again. For the time being and well into the future, the species would have to be managed by social engineers and professionals who found meaningful work for those lesser evolved creatures around them. And so you can see how this directly ties into what we were just talking about. And it's interesting that this is also not much different than what John Maynard Keynes himself had written. You know, he thought that once we did liberate ourselves from the economic problem, we would have this kind of uncomfortable adjustment period where he invokes the same language of genetic and biological kind of retraining um, because we had for, for millennia developed around this kind of, you know, ontological situation of, of scarcity and the economic problem. So, 
you know, th- this whole, this new language, even among progressive social scientists that invoked the biological, the developmental, and, and, and I think most interestingly, the cultural inadequacy uh, of what we have built and what we have become as human beings to make good use of leisure time. I think that's, that, that's very, uh, the, the Skinner example was really interesting because him too, just like, I didn't know, but just like you said, FDR, he also changed his position. We see all of these folks who actually flipped you know, flip their mentalities who are otherwise considered quite progressive. So it was really a, a broad phenomenon. It um, is. It, it, it's interesting you picked, pick up on that, the psychology. Also, um, The Lonely Crowd, who's the author of that? I can't, my mind is not working. Um, <laughs> the Lonely Crowd, do you remember? Uh, it'll come to me before long. David uh, Reisman? Pardon? Reisman, David Reisman? Right, 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 right. Yes. He, he made the same uh, change. He talked mm. He wrote a lot about leisure. I think it was in The Lonely Crowd uh, and its potential. And then uh, a few years later, he was 180 degrees. That leisure is, is not a possibility because a human animal is a you know wretched creature after all, and he needs the, uh, the, the discipline of work uh, to keep him from doing all sorts of nasty things to himself and other people. Right. By and large, the um, psychologists of the 20th century were a dismal uh, bunch of folks and had a uh, very pessimistic view of humanity in general. Um, more recently, within the last uh, 20 years, um, you probably are familiar with positive psychology. Yeah. People like my um, me High, mm-hmm. uh, Seligman, Martin Seligman. Uh, I just talked to me High. Uh, the other day, and a high point of my my year. Um, oh wow, wonderful! An older guy, but th- they pointed out, you know, uh, Seligman especially, <clears throat> that the 20th century psychology was all about uh, what goes wrong hmm. with the human condition and uh, and what wretched creatures we are after all. And the best we could hope for is, you know, to get back to zero, to um, trudge along and so forth. He, uh, Seligman says uh, psychology needs to be about um, zero plus one, <laughs> about what, yeah. what constitutes human well-being, what constitutes flourishing, and guess what? <laughs> uh, work is taking uh, a beating. Uh, the leisure <laughs> is, is, is seen increasingly as, as a possibility, a time to uh, enrich our lives, uh, where work is, you know, is important, and we should do the best we can to find a uh, a place where we are content. But it is in freedom that that uh, human beings flourish. They have a du- a different view of, of evolution, and they go go back into you know we we developed in our genes to be uh, cooperative to to uh, mm-hmm. herd animals. Uh, we what Walt Whitman called adhesiveness. We bond together and we enjoy that. Mm. Uh, and that, um, that that it's not you know dog eat dog uh, struggle to survive survival of the fittest, uh, but rather cooperation that mm-hmm. is in our genes and that and that is uh, substantially what makes us happy. Um, well, happy is yeah. The, they avoid the word. They use a new word. They call eudaimonia, mm. which is uh, Aristotle's word, eudaimonia. For um, we translate it as happiness, but it's more than that. It's living a full, 
life in which one expresses their full humanity. Um, so uh, a new a new vision is out there, and I think they're they're that B.F. Skinner's and the, the gloomy psychology of it's still around, but uh, there's there's another voice, uh, another kid on the block, uh, positive psychology, as well as positive neurobiology. The neurobiologists have weighed in, too, talking about play uh, mm-hmm. and how uh, um, uh, intrinsic motivation, joy, can be um, a powerful um uh, play a powerful role in our lives, and it's it's powerfully important that we're able to express that joy and find that joy in places other than the marketplace. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right to talk about this this shift in psychology and the questions of, of human nature. There was a uh, a Dutch historian, Rucker Bregman, who uh, wrote in 2014. He wrote a book called Utopia for Realists that was kind of a, a pragmatic historical look at a number of what we would consider today radical policies, like a 15-hour sh- uh, working week, universal basic income, things of this nature. And so he published this in 2014, and then he's kind of asked the question, you know, all right, you've laid out a very convincing case for why these fit the historical narrative, why they are economically feasible. What's standing in the way of, of actually doing these things? And he says, well, you know. On my book tour and on this, I've come to realize the real impediment, the real obstacle are our theories of human nature. And so what he set out to do is is publish a new history of human nature, which he did. He published it this year. Um, I forget the exact name. I think it was something like a hopeful history of humankind. But one of the elements from that book that that I really like, and I think is very relevant to this discussion, he was talking about how the assumptions you make about human nature when you are designing a system Whether or not they are true, those assumptions wind up kind of reifying and imposing themselves as that system progresses. And there's actually a name for this. He he talks about the Pygmalion effect. But in in short, you get what you design for. The assumptions you make about humans when you're designing the system will wind up influencing the way in which humans behave. So once everyone kind of bought into this assumption, whether true or not, whether based in this kind of developmental um, decline in intrinsic competency that I was talking about, you know, the, the idea that Americans cannot make good use of leisure time, economic development from that point on began reinforcing that quality in human beings. So what Bregman would say is that if you don't want Americans to be lazy and unmotivated and intrinsically deficient, you need to proactively design and implement a system that trusts them not to be. And cool. even if there are growing pains in the beginning, over time, what you have is a kind of the co-evolution of the participants and the system itself. It will guide our evolution towards those assumptions. Would you would you trust in that kind of approach? No, I, I think that's wonderful. I, I, I certainly agree with it. But uh, I was talking before. I don't know if you want to circle back to that. But with the experience economy, um, I talk a lot about experience design hmm. uh, as a new technology. I call it the eudaimonic technology. Uh, that with this new systems approach to design, designing experiences, yeah. you can embody, represent those findings of positive psychology that are more, more optimistic. Those things that really make us happy, uh, that yeah. make us that fulfill our joy. Uh, paying attention is, a, is an important thing. And, um, it's sort of hard to get it across uh, um, quickly. But except by using examples, one of my favorite examples is um, my son lives in up, um, 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 on Riverside Drive in New York City, um, uptown, mm-hmm. uh, not far from Harlem. 
And uh, on Airbnb, I write about Airbnb and the experience of uh, the age of experiences. Mm-hmm. Airbnb, this new uh, platform for experienced designers, is not only that you find a place to stay and sleep overnight, but also there's a new product with Airbnb called Experiences. Right. You're in a town like New York City and you're looking for things to do, go to Airbnb and you have all of these entrepreneurs who are putting out designing experiences on their own for this young kid up in Harlem. Uh, and I'm going to do this, by God. <laughs> Next time <laughs> I'm able to get to New York City, I'm 76 years old, but I don't give a damn. I'm going to go yeah, do it. Uh, up, in, up in Harlem, this young kid, uh, for 100 bucks, I think it was 100 bucks, you go up there and spend the evening with him. And he shows you around. Uh, mm. he, he gives you, you know, takes you to a, to a, a restaurant. Uh, he, he takes you back to his studio and teaches you to rap dance, to dance street dance, to, to rap. Wow. <laughs> uh, and You've got to do this. What? You've got to do this. i got to do it. You see, see what that's doing. Yeah. Uh, he's embodying, he's opening my experience, my, my life. And as, as you know, Rick Steves, the travel writer, he talks about the value of travel being it's, it's hard to hate somebody. <laughs> you get to meet them and you get to know them. And there it is. The, the, a designing experience that takes me, uh, takes the customer uh, to a new place um, to stretch the limitations, to, to open up uh, to new possibilities, to play with another human being, to overcome some of the barriers that, that, that separate human beings from each other. Um, mm-hmm. There's a potential there to design experiences that enrich, that produce joy, that produce understanding, that produce mutuality, and not de- de- produce dependency, uh, hostility, uh, alienation, all of those phrases of Habermas and Gortz. Right. At least I'm, I'm a great fan of, of Habermas and Andre Gortz. Mm, Gore, I just finished Gortz's critique of economic rationality. It's one of, or of, of reason. It's one of my favorite books I've read. I, I, it's powerful stuff. But again, I'm, I'm writing. I'm, I'm, I would like to think that the free market needs its chance. I think it's it's mm. a possibility. And why not? If there's a possibility there, why not take full advantage of the possibility of liberation capitalism? A way of <coughs> redesigning, or re-implementing, or rethinking technology so that it designs systems Mm -hmm. Uh, according to some of the insights of positive psychology and positive neurobiology, uh, rather than the older pessimistic assumptions of an earlier age designing in new types of systems, a eudaimonic technology that will open rather than close our humanity. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a, there's a quote that you've shared, uh, I've seen you share in a number of places, and you mentioned him earlier, Jonathan Edwards, uh, an 18th century preacher. And it reminded me of a similar quote by uh, a certain Ramdas slash Richard Alpert, a big Harvard psychologist turned spiritual teacher in the 60s. And I, I think that both of these quotes point, in, in a sense, to where we find ourselves today. Um, and I wanted to share them side by side and see if we can elaborate on them a little bit. The the Edwards quote that you share is, labor to get thoroughly convinced that there is something else needs caring for, right? So so labor so that you realize that there is something beyond labor that is that is incredibly vital. And 
then the Ramdas quote, you know, Ramdas is sitting in a, there's a gathering of people who have come to listen to him speak. This is when he's become the big spiritual teacher. He says, a lot of people come to me and say, Ramdas, I ought to meditate more. I should meditate more. How can I do that? And, and I say, forget it. You know, don't. Go out and lust some more. Go until you are so nauseated by your own predicament that you yearn to meditate. Get so hungry for it that you can't wait to just sit down, turn off the television, turn off the drama, and just be quiet for a few minutes. And what, what these two things kind of both point to for me is, is this idea of committing yourself so fully to the world as it is popularly given to us so that you cannot help but reach the end of its rope and kind of see, you know, there is something beyond what we have going here. And I, th I think that if I can be, be kind of so crude as to talk about the, the American psyche, I, I think this is something that we're doing at a collective level is that we've committed from this period from 1980 until today so deeply, so existentially to this ideology of, of work and economic progress absent any larger context. It feels as though it's becoming unavoidable that we're coming up against that, that wall where we realize there's something beyond it that we have neglected. Um, and, you know, there's all these tropes now. There's Byung-Chul Han, the German philosopher who wrote a book to call the early 21st century the burnout society. We see deaths of despair and suicides are spiking, especially in working class demographics. We're seeing mental health in ruins and so on. And it, it feels as though collectively we're having this reckoning and, and we are growing so nauseated with our predicaments. We're yearning for change, but we don't know where to look and we don't know what to do. Or we don't even, many of us lack, I think, the belief that meaningful change is possible anymore. This is much of the work from, from Mark Fisher and, and these folks who talk about capitalist realism, how neoliberal capitalism creates an ideological climate that makes us feel powerless to do anything to change it. Um, a, a metaphor that I thought about that I think describes a situation is that we have sucked the oxygen out of the chamber that we're living in. And for the past 40 or 50 years, we have been slowly and progressively losing our breath. But we're still carrying on, only getting slightly more frantic, more on edge. But but it seems that it, it's turning into louder and louder gasps with less and less time between them, right? So so I wanted to to turn all that into a question to ask, what role do you see the kind of loss of higher progress, the loss of what you've called the better half of the American dream, playing in the kind of series of crises, the series of kind of turbulence that, that, that we're living through today, the general psychological condition, would you say it's fair to say this, this has much of its root in our kind of loss of a broader context, our, our kind of decline from looking beyond the edges of labor? I, I agree, sure. Uh, I think we are, especially the, the um, millennial generation and mm -hmm. generation after that, Young people are beginning to hit the wall, begin to doubt work as the center of life, to doubt um, consumerism uh, and the wonderland of consumerism, to doubt the um, maldistribution of, of, of wealth. Um, yeah. I think that all of those things are figuring into a maybe the beginning of a new consciousness, I'd like to think. That, 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 but how to, how to nurture that? Uh, one, right. one of the findings of positive psychology with people like Seligman is that we're drawn to the future. That's his phrase. He wrote a book called Flourishing. Mm. As positive psychology is all about the human animal as the, the visionary. Mm. Uh, he uses a Latin phrase, and I forgot what it was, um, that we are by nature drawn to the future. We like to 
think of ourselves as having a goal, a destination that gives purpose and meaning to our lives. So um, I think that that vision thing is vitally important. It's the reason I wrote uh, Free Time, The Forgotten American Dream, is to recover, to represent that wonderful dream uh, to, to inspire, but um, uh, and, and then thereby to make a small contribution. And my teaching also, I try to inspire, mm-hmm. to, to represent what inspires me with people like Walt Whitman and uh, Dorothy, yeah. Dorothy Canfield Fisher and uh, all the rest. Um, but I'll, I'll continue to, to do all, what I can to say, you know, to say that there is a, there's something, there's more to it. <laughs> there's more to life. There's, there's a possibility other than what we yeah. see before us work without it. There's a looking exploration and since it is out there, I, I think maybe I'm, I'm more optimistic. Maybe having mm-hmm. worked till we got to a place to, that we understand there's something better to do, as Jonathan Edwards would say, mm-hmm. oh, to look around uh, for, yeah. for something better to do than base our existence on on our jobs or on the things that money will buy us. Right. And, and it's, I'm, I'm happy that you brought up Gores because I had, I had drawn a, a quote from Gores as well that I think really speaks to this kind of the ontological divide and status of, of a life confined by labor and economic incentives versus one that is liberated to broader possibilities. Uh, right. Gores was writing, so he wrote, quote, economic rationality, which is a particular form of cognitive instrumental rationality, which is a, a nod back to Habermas, right. is not only wrongly extended to cover institutional actions to which it is not applicable, it colonizes, reifies, and mutilates the very relational fabric on which social integration, education, and socialization depend. Are there not other types of rationality consonant with the ontological multidimensionality of existence. Now, Gores is, Gors is uh, he uses a lot of chewy language, but this idea of the relationship between economic systems and the ontological multidimensionality of existence has been ringing in my head. And I, I think that can kind of bring us up to, to today. We've pointed out the problem. You've mentioned, and I, this is fascinating, and I want to circle into it. You've mentioned kind of the one approach to kind of reconnecting higher progress via the experiencing economy as kind of a market-based solution, which is really interesting. Um, I, I would be curious how you see the pursuit of higher progress today or trying to re- reintroduce this idea into the economic system and into the kind of cultural ethos, specifically the, the policies, the economic policies. If, we, if your approach is kind of the market is going to do this and if we nurture this element of it, there's, there's a lot of talk about m- more top-down approaches, which have a bad ring to them, but there's basically give, acknowledging that government is not this horrible miscreant, but government actually has very uh, relevant power today. And so, you know, in the 20th century, the policy platform that, that, you've, that you've spoken about was really based on higher wages and shorter working, working weeks, which would be achieved either by individual firms self-selecting to reduce their shifts via work-sharing programs, or from national policy that would reduce the threshold at which overtime pay started. Um, And a lot of this was based kind of around the employment structures of the time, which were predominantly factories. And and these kinds of things certainly still play a role. Um, But the economy is so much different than it was, right? It's become an open system. It's globalized, digitized, it's financialized. Um, And and I think this brings in a new spectrum of approaches, as you've mentioned and explored in your most recent book, um, that are relevant to this kind of new economic landscape. So even just to return to this old ideal is calling for new policies and new approaches. 
And and one of the elements um, taking taking your the experiencing comedy economy as one approach, I think another one that that I've personally been very interested in and have explored on the show a little bit is looking at the role that that wealth and the structures of asset ownership play in in granting democratized freedom. Um, one of the biggest differentiators between the 20th century and today, in my view, is the dynamics of wealth. So not only wealth inequality, which has ballooned since 1980, but also the new ways in which wealth is is created and captured. And it seems to me that wealth, maybe even more so than higher wages, is what really makes leisure time possible in the sense that owning wealth or being included in the returns of the ass- that assets generate give people unconditional income, meaning they receive income without having to exchange any time in return, whereas wages are still part of this exchanging structure. So one element of, of a potential return to an economy that generates leisure time for all I think could be a restructuring of asset ownership and more inclusive institutions of public wealth or public-private partnerships that universalize the benefits that previously privatized wealth, you know, grants to an increasing uh, minority. And especially since 2008, but more so in recent years, there are a number of approaches that are trying to do this, trying to get beneath wages and redistribution and trying to change the pre-distributive dynamics of the economy so that wealth is created and captured in a more democratic and egalitarian fashion to begin with. Um, and, you know, the more wealth every citizen has access to, the more optionality they have over how they spend their time. Um, and specifically, you know, these ideas can be as familiar as something like universal health care. They can be as perhaps unorthodox as things like social wealth funds, uh, baby bonds, royalties that every citizen receives on, on assets that are transferred from private to collective ownership and so on. But overall, how does this idea land with you that in the 21st century context, it, deeper reforms and wage hikes might mean we, we have to look at things more flexible and democratic approaches to asset ownership and wealth. Yeah. Whoa. Um, I'm not as familiar with, with um, this topic as you are. <laughs> <laughs> you certainly know um, uh, more of the ins and outs. I, I, I tend to support things like, uh, as I said before, a guaranteed annual and other forms of wealth redistributions. I'm not that sure of. And I'm not sure that even those forms of wealth redistribution that you're mentioning, some of which... That's fine. Let's take basic income. Well, um, I'm not sure of the link between those systems of redistribution and leisure time. I think that the demand or even legislation for uh, regulating work hours I'm not sure of that link. I, I really, I've gotten to the point of thinking that in order, you, you can't make people be free. Mm-hmm. Um, that you, the, 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 the desire <laughs> for being free has got to somehow precede um, the possibility. They, they're, they're, otherwise, you get people taking second jobs uh, mm-hmm. and looking at working 30 hours as a part-time job, uh, that sort of thing, uh, um, rather than being an embrace of the possibilities of leisure. So I, I tend to think mm. that the demand for leisure sh- sh- should be there, for, needs to be there first, and it's really hard to, to make. What I think, though, is it's out there, uh, especially in the the, um, the demand for time, uh, is out there if, if uh, th- there are some enlightened business people who would, and you see this. I, I think you're, um, there's a good deal of interest now in Europe <laughs> with uh, alternate ways of, of structuring a work week, 
Uh, mm. Perhaps you've been reading about the 30-hour work week uh, out of Finland, some of the Scandinavian countries, even France has been looking at it. The four-day work work, have you been seeing that discussion out of the pandemic with unemployment? Work sharing has, again, as it, as it did during the Great Depression, uh, emerged as a, a primary way of, of, of policy to, to deal with, with, um, with, uh, with unemployment. Um, mm-hmm. And so you have a, a lot of people writing and, and advocating for the four-day work, uh, work week, for example, as, as an unemployment measure. You also have people like uh, enlightened business folks, uh, uh, managers, who uh, offer shorter, short schedules for, for people that want them. Uh, Lindsey Hahn in Nobles, no, Nobleville, Indiana, uh, Metro Plastics, his company does uh, 30 hours, and he, mm-hmm. uh, he pays his workers pretty well. 30, 40, it's called. He pays them 40 hours. They work 30, and he has um, mm-hmm. uh, no problem at all hiring people. People are eager to have <laughs> away from that. So um, um, I think that, that, you know, individual firms need to step up and offer those possibilities, and I hope that I think that's an avenue. Um, but again, I, I'm sort of suspicious of uh, of the link between um, wealth redistribution and the demand for leisure. It seems to my my thinking is that as human beings begin to uh, demand more of their lives and take it back, take you know reclaim their lives from the marketplace, from capitalism, uh, rather than spending uh, their lives uh, creating profits for the very rich seeing yeah, yeah. the advantage of, of spending their lives the way that they would like to spend their lives, <laughs> doing things that they really would like to do, that they enjoy. Uh, if that dynamic can can take hold, then there would be an automatic redistribution mm-hmm. <coughs> with, with capital flowing from the centers, uh, from the, the places where it's pooled up in uh, enormous fortunes, uh, what is it? Three people uh, in the United States own as much wealth as the bottom fifty percent of the. Yeah, some ridiculous number. Well, that that wealth will begin to flow from investment uh, into these new economies, into people's lives, as they begin to actually make those choices in the marketplace. Uh, would flow out, away from capital into value, away from capital into time. That I think is is for me the, the more realistic, perhaps, um, yeah, yeah. a possibility. Uh, given certainly given the political tenor of what <laughs> politics looks like today, so um, that to me is, is I, I certainly am interested and intrigued. Of your citing of Andre Gortz, you read some of the, my favorite passages from from um, that was um, his workbook, right? Um, yeah. Uh, what was the title of it? The Critique yeah. of Economic Reason. Exactly. Yeah, I, 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 that is a formative book in my life. But um, again, we'll see. Uh, again, I think it, <laughs> it's, it's what I said in uh, the new book, the, um, the Age of Experience, is that we're going to have a, um, in the next 20 years or so, we'll be uh, running an experiment. <laughs> yeah, um, right. The contradictions of, of capitalism that um, E.P. Thompson, the British historian, I, I teach his 
wonderful uh, time, work, discipline, and industrial capitalism in, in, in my classes. It's a, cl- a classic in leisure studies. E.P. Thompson talks about a novel dialectic that, that capitalism is, is haunted by a number of contradictions, among which, uh, and I still believe that, uh, even though some people have gone beyond that, uh, th- that um, capitalism uh, has a premium on getting rid of work, of finding ways to replace uh, work workers with, with machines. And, but at the same time, they have the obligation, they have to propagandize work in order to keep people in line and also find a tractable labor source. So there's mm-hmm. a contradiction, it's something that they have to propagandize, they have to, uh, to make a priority in, in cult- culturally. At the same time, they're destroying it. So that contradiction of destruction of, of jobs versus the pro- propagandizing of work can lead to to several uh, syntheses, <laughs> to use those terms, uh, term, uh, outcomes. One of which is to, um, uh, to the unemployment becomes worse and worse, maldistribution of wealth becomes worse and worse, until the system begins to 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 implode, to um, to fall apart, and dictatorship. You know, the revolution and the dictatorship of the proletariat would be the result. Uh, the second would be the continuation of the exploitation of the leisure industries. He calls them the leisure industries, where work mm. is is still propagandized. But leisure is still used to support uh, unnecessary consumption, keeping people at work, consuming things that they don't need uh, indefinitely. And, and for me, that you know, the continuation of exploitation, and the last is 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 the possibility of of continuing uh, leisure, where uh, workers would uh, uh, regain. Um, that impetus they had in the 19th century to shorten the hours of labor and in that way uh, reclaim their lives away from capitalism uh, and have a, a, a peaceful revolution, perhaps, a revolution of time uh, that workers, workers would regain their uh, re- regain ownership of their own lives. Uh, you're suggesting perhaps a fourth in, in terms of, of government uh, redistribution, but again, uh, I think that leaves unanswered the question of where, where work figures in, into, mm-hmm. um, into the equation. And I think, I think you're right that wealth redistribution, um, even if it's subsumed in a broader project of pre-distribution, it's, even if it cuts more people into the unconditional returns on wealth, it's not going to instill the demand for leisure and for freedom. So it might just be reinvested into the existing ethos. Right. I remember, uh, I think the, the last line to, I think it was your book, Free Time, was that uh, free people choosing more freedom is, is the best hope that, that we have for the future or something to yeah. that effect. I thought that was a wonderful sentiment. Well, that, um, my, that I still stand by that. I still hope for that. And yeah. hope to be able to, to, to find ways to, to make that happen or to be on the, on the side of that happening in some small way. Uh, work is, I think, um, beginning to, to fragment, uh, especially with the millennial generation. It's coming apart. Uh, the old nine to five uh, career, where you you know get a gold watch after fifty years, it's not mm. not there anymore. Um, yeah. and you know the, the 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 gig economy is is a big thing, and um, the sharing economy is a big thing. I, the work is coming apart. Yeah. Uh, more and more work is being done outside of the context of the economy. 
um, where we own the means of production and the giving economy, I'm sorry, the sharing economy. We're finding ways of, of, of living our lives independent of the marketplace uh, of, of profit and loss, uh, of capitalism. Uh, I, mm. I think to me that's the, the more hopeful place, that, that work coming apart. We will naturally look look about us for, for alternatives. Uh, that's a more optimistic point of view, I think, than seeing us running against you know, a barrier where we are despairing because our work is not providing what we think it should, or what we mm-hmm. promised that it provide us, we would come depressed and um, so forth, suicide because we yeah. lost of meaning because we've lost this God. Um, this is more hopeful, I think, that that, that work. We're, the people in the young people in my life, they scare the hell out of me because <laughs> they're not as you know, concerned with things like retirement and health insurance, which I finally talked them into, you know, thank God for Obamacare, you know, right. are all lined up there. Um, but, you know, yeah. they're looking at work very differently than I did. It's uh, not the center of their life. They, they are looking at other, other, other ways to live their lives, other centers. And I think maybe that's healthy. Uh, and uh, maybe that's, the point that Jonathan Ed- Edwards was was pointing to work to get convinced there's something better in life to do. <laughs> right. they, uh, the next generation has finally found that place. Yeah, and, and I think uh, Andre Gores pointed pointed this out as well that he believed something like a guaranteed income in conjunction with a program of shortening the working week that not one without the other, but what these would do would essentially. Uh, boost people's capacities and platforms to explore what he called the, these, you know, other ontologies. But, but yeah. like you, his, his hope was not that we would like be able to impose freedom upon people. It was that we would be able to create the conditions such that people will naturally begin to demand more and more freedom. Um, and there was a role for policy in that via guaranteed income, but there was also especially a role just in terms of the culture kind of beginning to shift, which I think you've, you've done a lot here to, to point us out in the different areas that, that it's beginning to happen. Oh, I hope so. I, I, I'm, so I'm delighted to talk with you. I, it, it has brightened my outlook considerably that there, there are people out there who are actually, number one, reading what I've written. Oh, absolutely, but yeah. Also, but, have, but have, but you know, are clearly interested in fighting the good fight. I think it's a wonderful cause, a cause to, to, to restore that, that vision, that purpose, that for so long encouraged and um, excited uh, the uh, people uh, in, in this country, uh, throughout the world, and if we can bring that back somehow and and uh, re-energize, uh, re-establish, um, that that's um, something well worth doing indeed. Dr. Honiga, it has been an absolute pleasure. I, I've really benefited from your oh, work. I, and I've I, 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 thanks so much. I, as I say, uh, talking to you has has cheered me up considerably. (laughs) All right. If anyone listening wants to check out more of uh, his work, I'll have all of the books linked on on the show notes page so you can get there. Benjamin, thanks again for joining me. You're certainly welcome. Thanks a lot. All right. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Um, And I hope you caught the moment where he's interrupted by the sight of a rare bird and you can hear in his voice, right, how struck he is by it. And I thought that that was such a perfect demonstration of, of so much of what we discuss in the conversation. 
Uh, as I mentioned, the episode page on the website has links to the books and articles that he and I mentioned throughout the conversation and more information on his books and works, which I highly recommend. Uh, if you want to stay up to date with the podcast, the website, which is musingmind.org, also has a newsletter tab that you can sign up for. I usually send about one or two a month, and I always include any new podcasts or essays I'm publishing, along with kind of deeper dives into the guests and their work and, and my own thinking. If you want to get in touch, I'm active on Twitter. You can just search my name, Oshan Jarrow, or you can contact me through the website or by responding to a newsletter. Uh, I, I really think that the history of leisure in the American context is worth bringing to a wider audience, especially today. Um, so if you did enjoy, please do consider sharing it or checking out um, Benjamin's work. And uh, that's it. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. <laughs>